Hello, and welcome to Musings on History. Episode 5.2, History of Christianity, Part 2, Christological Debate and the Many Myths of Jesus. Hello, and welcome back to Musings on History. Last episode was the beginning of a series about the history of Christianity, and today I'll be picking up where last episode left off, with the triumph of Emperor Constantine I and his struggle for supremacy in the Roman Empire, and his embrace of Christianity in the pivotal battle of Milvian Bridge in 312 AD. Constantine did more than just embrace Christianity publicly, however. Through a series of councils and edicts, he, his successors, and the bishops of the early church streamlined Christian dogma, codified the doctrines that established Jesus' divinity, and made the final separations between Judaism and Christianity, eventually declaring Christianity as Rome's state religion, replacing the old Roman pantheon and with it, old Roman religious tolerance. Chapter 1 the many names and faces of Jesus of Nazareth. By the 4th century AD, Christianity was being practiced in every part of the Roman Empire, as well as in the Aksumite Empire, which is located in present-day Eritrea and Ethiopia. It was also a minority religion in Sassanid Persia, behind Zoroastrianism and later Islam, and there were even Christian communities in southern India during the reign of the Mushika dynasty and in China during the 16 Kingdoms period. As well as being spread by its earliest believers, Christianity was spread mainly through the travels and writings of Jesus' apostles and the first saints. According to legend, it was St. Bartholomew who went to the Malabar coast of India after the ascension of Christ and ministered to the people there, leaving behind a copy of the Gospel of Matthew, who was another apostle. This account is contested by Western theologians and is considered canon by Eastern theologians, including present-day Christians in Kerala, India. The problem with the attestations of the Gospels is that they all wrote different accounts about Jesus, which led to continuity issues regarding Jesus' divinity, message, and more fundamentally, how he wanted his new faith to be observed. It's also worth pointing out that Jesus and his original 12 apostles were Jews who ministered to other Jews. There was that whole, you know, thing about the Samaritan woman at the well and everything, but the Samaritans are essentially Jews who think that the temple should have been at Mount Gerizim and not the Temple Mount. So that doesn't even really count. Uh, The Great Commission to spread the gospel to the Gentiles, that is non-Jews, was originally proclaimed by the Apostle Paul, who was a Jew from Tarsus who originally hunted down Christians until Jesus allegedly spoke to him on the road to Damascus. Paul was named Saul then, and he was a self-proclaimed apostle who had a bit of an inferiority complex about the way that he converted and, you know, his activities before then. All of this, coupled with the fact that these Christian communities had spent hundreds of years in relative isolation from one another due to persecution, 
Then there's the language barriers that existed when attempting to proselytize and the proliferation of these various gospels in the centuries following Jesus's death. And this meant that by 313, which is the year Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, Christianity was more of a loose confederation of various cults with their own interpretation of Jesus and his message. The only thing that had unified them in the centuries of persecution was their vilification by the state. And now that this was no longer an issue, Constantine needed to figure out a way to unify Christianity under one dogma and one theology. This was a huge departure from how religion was usually practiced in antiquity because deities usually had like multiple variations on their myths depending on where they were being worshipped. So an island in Greece might have a whole cult of Zeus that was centered around Zeus's alleged interactions just on that island. And nobody really cared about it. It wasn't like there had to be one set of canonical myths of Zeus. There could be multiple kinds. So yeah, no effort was generally undertaken in antiquity to consolidate and streamline mythology until now. Chapter two, Emperor Constantine, St. Paul, and the manufactured consent of the church. Despite being one of the most famous men in history, very little is known about Constantine's true intentions when he legalized Christianity. Born and raised as a pagan in Roman Dacia, which is in modern day Serbia, Constantine's mother Helena was a Greek woman of low birth and his father Constantius divorced her when Constantine was a baby so he could marry Maximian's daughter. Constantine and Helena were later installed in the court of Diocletian in Nicomedia and Constantine was given the education befitting the son of an emperor. Despite his mother's Greek background, Constantine's native language was Latin and he needed a Greek translator for his speeches for his entire reign. This would have separated him from the majority of Christians in the Eastern Empire who spoke Greek and from the Christians of the Levant in North Africa who spoke Aramaic. He was a general in Diocletian's court during the Great Persecution, something that the Christians of his lifetime never let him forget. But he was defended by the Latin-speaking Christian scholar Lactantius, there we go, who maintained that Constantine was never in support of Diocletian's persecutions and was a noble hostage, so to speak, that Diocletian held in order to keep Constantine's father loyal. As a member of the Tetrarchy, Constantine ruled over Britain, Gaul, and Spain. And these areas didn't have a real deep Christian presence until the 5th century AD. Plus, Constantine's main concern while in this part of the empire was securing the borders and warring with the Franks, Sarpatians, Picts, and Alamanni, and various other groups. After defeating Maxentius at Milvian Bridge, Constantine retained the title of Pontifex Maximus, which was originally a pagan religious title that made the emperor the high priest of the College of Pontiffs. Now it's one of the many titles of the Pope. He also continued to dedicate temples, feast days, and triumphal arches to the Roman gods, such as the Arch of Victoria in 312, which was decorated with the bust of the Roman goddess of victory, Victoria, as well as um, the goddess Diana and the god Apollo. 
Constantine did patronize Christian churches, however, and he financed the building of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem and Old St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. The basilica was built on top of the Circus of Nero, which was the site where St. Peter was alleged to have been martyred during the Neronian persecution. By building the Church of St. Peter atop the ruins of Nero's circus, Constantine was extending an olive branch to the Christians who still didn't trust him. Constantine was still a pagan at this time as well, and the Christians still viewed him with some suspicion because of his former closeness to Diocletian. Constantine was also keen to associate Rome, the city, with Christianity and make it a major pilgrimage site. Most, if not all, the pilgrimage sites for Christians at this time were located in the Levant, and most of the churches were located in Asia Minor and in Greece, two areas that the displaced Jews had settled in after the Bar Kokhba revolt. In order for Rome to become the center of the Christian faith, it needed to be associated with something other than being the site of so many persecutions. And so Constantine used a passage from the Gospel of Matthew sixteen eighteen, where Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell that you tell you that you are Cephas, Peter, Petros, and on this rock, Petra, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to, of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So in this passage, Jesus calls his apostle Simon, Peter, and says that it is because Simon will be the stabilizing figure in the Christian faith after Jesus' ascension. In antiquity, it was very common for people to change their names after life-changing experiences like Abram and Sarai became Abraham and Sarah after entering into their covenant with El. It was also common to add honorifics to one's name as a way of letting people know that you were someone who had accomplished something great. The word Cephas means rock in Aramaic, and the Greek word for rock is Petros. So the passage from Matthew 16, 18 was meant to be a play on words in the two main languages that were spoken by Christians. The Jesuit scholar Peter Harrington says that this passage was meant to reassure Simon Peter, who had doubted Jesus's ability to feed the multitudes and denied knowing Jesus three times when questioned by the Roman authorities. It also meant to show Christians that in this new faith, the mistakes of the past did not necessarily determine one's future because although Simon Peter's faith in Jesus had wavered in the past, Jesus still entrusted him to carry out the Great Commission after his ascension. For early Christians, this passage had not necessarily given Simon Peter any supreme authority over all other Christians since the faith was still pretty decentralized and had very little hierarchy before uh like the second century. Constantine was determined to change that. So he made Matthew 16, 18 literal and built a church of stone on top of the place where Simon Peter had died for his faith, signifying that St. Peter was to be the centralizing figure, the rock that the Christian faith was organized around and that St. Peter's church was where this was going to occur. The establishment of St. Peter as the Supreme Apostle was the culmination of a larger movement begun by the followers of the Apostle Paul to give Jesus ultimate divinity. In the Proto-Orthodox Church of the 1st and 2nd centuries AD, the Church Fathers were theologians who had known the Apostles and 
who wrote about various doctrinal matters in letters called epistles. Paul, who was still called Saul uh, in this time, was a, still a Pharisee Jew in the employ of the Romans, and his job was to hunt down these apostles, because not just the 12 apostles, like in the Eastern Orthodox Church, there's like upwards of 70. These are just the earliest followers of Jesus. Uh, he was also employed to hunt down church fathers and, you know, regular Christians. Once Saul became Paul and proclaimed himself as an apostle, he acquired his own cohort of followers, including Marcion of Sinope, who argued that Jesus was sent by a greater God than the God of the Jews. And as such, Christians were no longer bound to the original Mosaic law that had kept the Jews in covenant with Yahweh. He argued that the God of the Hebrews, who he called the Demiurge, was the creator of the material universe and that mosaic law represented legalistic jurisprudence that punished people for their sins. In contrast, the God of Jesus was forgiving and accepting of humanity's flaws and failures. Marcion wrote a book called Antithesis, where he contrasted the Demiurge and the God of the Christians. He also wrote the first Christian canon in 11 books called the Evangelicon. He also wrote the Apostolicon, which was a compilation of gospels according to Paul, who Marcion considered to be the only true apostle. Marcion did not believe that Jesus had had a physical body, and so he didn't believe in the virgin birth, the crucifixion, or the resurrection. He did, however, firmly believe in Paul's interpretation of Matthew 5, 17, where Jesus says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So when Christianity was merely one of many sects of Judaism, it was generally understood that Jesus was a political Messiah descended from the line of David, who would lead the Jews into the Messianic age and reestablish the kingdom of Israel. This was the view of the Nazarenes and the Ibionites, two Jewish Christian sects that wrote the gospel of the Hebrews and gave it to St. Jerome. The gospel of the Hebrews was the basis of doctrine for the earliest church fathers. Beginning in the fourth century, theologians such as Eusebius of Caesarea began to disavow the gospel of the Hebrews with Eusebius adding it to his list of antilegomena or disputed texts. These texts didn't make it into New Testament canon. Marcion argued that by claiming to fulfill the law, Jesus was saying that he was a spiritual Messiah who would lead all people into the Messianic age and that the law of Moses was no longer necessary to maintain covenant with God. This was done not only to tie the Old Testament to the New Testament, but it was also done to give Jesus an element of divinity that he didn't have during the age of the church fathers, which is called the early patristic age. Instead of the epistles of the church fathers who actually knew the apostles that had walked aside alongside Jesus and the doctrines of the Nazarenes and Ebionites, Jesus's first followers, the New Testament instead contains 13 epistles that are said to have been written by Paul called the Pauline epistles. And they provide insight into the doctrinal debates and controversies in early Christianity. These epistles are letters that Paul wrote to the churches in Rome, Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, and Thessalonica, as well as letters that he wrote to missionaries like St. Timothy, St. Titus, and St. Philemon. And then one letter that he's alleged to have written to a community of Hebrew Christians. 
Paul's letter to the Hebrews was the first mention of Jesus as the son of God. And historian Abel Biblikowitz says that the epistle to the Hebrews attempts a more complex, nuanced, and openly adversarial definition of the relationship between mainstream Jews and Jewish Christians. This is the epistle that many people think Paul did not actually write because of the sophisticated style of the Greek that it's written in versus Paul's more rudimentary and bombastic Greek in his other letters. The construction of the New Testament and its emphasis on Pauline doctrine over other church uh, fathers and apostles happened mostly during the fourth century in a series of councils called by Emperor Constantine. The most notable are the councils of Nicaea and Chalcedon, but I'll talk about all four of the major ones. One thing that I noticed was that Pauline doctrine relies heavily on the gospel of Matthew as the justification for many of its claims. And it was not on lost on me that Matthew, who was called Levi in the gospel of Mark on the gospels of Mark and Luke was a tax collector in Capernaum when he was called to walk with Jesus as one of his original 12 apostles. Constantine was a pretty tolerant man for his day, but he was emperor of Rome first and foremost. And so any teachings that did not explicitly or subtly encourage Christians to pay their taxes to the Roman state weren't going to be tolerated. In the medieval church, the story of Jesus turning over the moneylenders table in the temple of Solomon was told in such a way that it demonized the Jewish people who were in the Middle Ages barred from most professions in Europe for hundreds of years. And so they went into banking and money lending as a result since the Catholic Church did not allow usury. And so Christians avoided working in that industry. Then that little anecdote about the Roman governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, washing his hands of the crucifixion and letting the Jews decide what to do with Jesus was another way that the church under Constantine's direction at the beginning shifted blame onto the Jews and away from the Romans. When Jesus as a first century AD Jew from Nazareth would have surely seen the Romans as his enemy and not his fellow Jews. The emphasis on the gospel of Matthew as the basis for Pauline doctrine and the subsequent emphasis of Pauline doctrine on the New Testament canon hints at Constantine and his successor emperors um, using the gospels to rehabilitate the Roman state in the minds of Christians and also reintegrate Christians into the Roman social order, most notably by paying their taxes. Chapter three. Thorns on the side, the Arians, Nestorians, and the Gnostics. So earlier in chapter one, I mentioned that the early Christians were influenced by various gospels and held lots of different beliefs about the nature of Jesus's divinity. In the first and second centuries AD, Jesus was widely considered to be a fully human, anti-Roman, Jewish political messiah or really just the first century. But by the late second century and into the third and fourth centuries AD, Jesus was Jesus Christ, the son of God. And depending on who you asked, either an eternal co-equal to God or subservient to him. Out of all of the philosophies on the nature of Jesus, there were three that were the most influential and who ended up battling it out for supremacy at the councils of Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, and Chalcedon. These are Nestorianism, Arianism, and Gnosticism. And the bitter irony in all of this debate about the nature of Christ is that all of these Christological schools of thought were more influenced by 
Plato, a pagan, than by the words of Jesus and his earliest followers and apostles. So now I'm just going to give you a quick rundown of these three Christological schools of thought and then explain the Platonian connections and what happened at each of these councils and why. And I'll start with Arianism first. So Arianism is the name given to the followers of Arius, a a Christian presbyter in Alexandria, Egypt. He had been taught by a man named Lucian, who had been taught by a man named Paul of Samosata, who was eventually uh, condemned as a heretic. And all three of them held the belief that Jesus as the son of God had been created within time by God and thus was not an eternal co-equal of God. All of this kind of originated from a Greek philosophical school of thought called homoousianism, homoousianism, because the other one sounds a lot like it. Homoousianism concerns itself with the nature of divine beings relative to the supreme divine. So when you put a Christian spin on it, it states that Jesus is of a similar but not the same nature as God. Arius's biblical justification came from Proverbs 8:22 to 25. The Lord created me at the beginning of his work. Therefore, the son was rather the very first and most perfect of God's creatures. And he was made God only by the father's permission and power. Sounds pretty good to me. Our Arius's arch nemesis was a guy named Athanasius, who was also from Alexandria. And Athanasius was the leader of the Trinitarians who believed that the son of God had always existed and was of the same essence as God, the father. The Greek philosophical school of thought that this comes from is called homoousianism. Arianism became very popular in Roman North Africa and outside of the Roman empire as well. Arians and Trinitarians eventually started like rioting and beefing in the streets of Alexandria and other cities like it was West Side Story. And so that's when the Bishop of Alexandria asked Constantine to settle the matter, despite the fact that Constantine was one, not even a Christian and two, not even remotely philosophically inclined to weigh in on the matter. But Constantine was emperor and the violence was getting out of hand. So he called the first of several pivotal ecumenical councils, the Council of Nicaea from May to August 325 AD to settle this dispute. In reality, there was no debate to be had because Athanasius had done everything that he could do to sway the bishops that were going to be in attendance, not only against Arius's beliefs, but Arius himself. Arius, not being a bishop, was not allowed to attend the council in his own defense, and out of the estimated 318 attendees, only two decided not to sign the Nicene Creed, which made Trinitarian doctrine into canon law. Even Arians like Eusebius of Nicomedia, who baptized Constantine on his deathbed, did not vouch for Arius or for his doctrinal stance. The very first Nicene Creed goes as follows. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, by whom all things were made, for who us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered, and the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven, From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead and in the Holy Ghost. Amen. 
So pretty much every word of the Nicene Creed is intended to be a final fuck you to Arius and his doctrine, but it was revised at the first council of Constantinople in 381 to sort of beef up Jesus's backstory and squash some other controversies that I'll get to later. The Trinitarians won big at the Council of Nicaea, but Athanasius was himself put on trial at the first synod of Tyre in 381 for murder, illegal taxation, sorcery, and treason, and for refusing to readmit Arius back into Christian fellowship after Arius's period of exile. So then Athanasius was sent into exile in Trier on the Roman border with Germania, and in his absence, Arianism again began to flourish both inside and outside the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, uh, Roman emperors Constantius II and Valens were semi-Arians, as was Odesser, who was the first king of Italy after the sack of Rome in 431 AD. The Lombards were also Arians up until the 7th century, when many of them were converted to the Catholic faith, as were the Visigoths in Spain and their cousins, the Goths. When the Vandals took over North Africa, they spread their Arian faith across that region. And eventually, Arianism became synonymous with the barbarians and Trinitarianism became synonymous with the true Roman Christians. And so as the church in Rome gained power, Arianism was reduced to the furthest reaches of the Christian world until it eventually died out. I feel like it's worth noting that most of the bishops in attendance had no idea what the fuck Arius or Athanasius were talking about. And the concept of the Holy Spirit baffled most Christians, and it was rarely discussed outside of a few philosophical academies in Alexandria and Constantinople. Also, Athanasius had no scriptural backing for his concept of the Trinity. One of his followers, Gregory of Nazanius, I'm going to guess, it says, No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish three than I am carried back into the one. When I think of any of the three, I think of him as the whole and my eyes are filled and the greater part of what I am thinking escapes me, which is kind of like, okay, like so Like basically Athanasius was like, it's provocative and it gets the people going. And then he paid a bunch of bishops to make them agree with his view of things. Uh, The next one is Nestorianism. Like Arianism is named for Arius. So Nestorianism is named after Nestorius, who was the archbishop of Constantinople until he was condemned and deposed from his see at the Council of Ephesus in 431 AD. Nestorius became controversial after he rejected the concept of Theotokos, or mother of God, being ascribed to Jesus's mother Mary. Nestorius preferred the interpretation that Jesus was of two natures, divine and human, and these natures manifested individually rather than the idea that Jesus's divine and human natures were in full hypostatic union. Basically, if Jesus had a human nature that was not in full union with his divine nature, then that would mean Jesus had at some point been susceptible to sin or even committed it. In order for Jesus to either be of one divine nature, uh, yeah, one divine nature, which is called monophytism, or for his two natures to be in full hypostatic union, which is called diaphytism, his mother Mary needed to be elevated to some kind of demigodhood as well. Personally, I prefer the way the pagans did it, where Zeus would just transform into some kind of animal, sleep with a princess, and then nine months later, some guy with super strength is born and sent on quests. 
the Christians, especially the ones from Alexandria, were a little too nerdy and they were like super obsessed with the details because honestly, who cares if Jesus has one, two, 50 natures? Anyway, Nestorius was condemned at the Council of Ephesus, as were his followers, and most of them moved into the Sasanian Empire in Persia and worshipped with the Christians there. This led to these churches eventually being called the Nestorian Churches of the East, even though most of them at the time didn't even know what the hell Nestorius was talking about, and they were just being nice and letting these exiled Christians worship with them. The Council of Ephesus and the condemnation of Nestorius was just one of the many growing rifts between the churches in the Eastern Empire and those in the West, and these issues would eventually result in the Great Schism. Then there's Gnosticism. So unlike Arianism and Nestorianism, Gnosticism isn't named for any man that popularized the doctrine. And really, Gnosticism isn't a distinct doctrine at all. The word gnosis is the basis for Gnosticism, and it emphasizes personal spiritual knowledge over orthodoxy or the authority of any one church. So that last part is what put Gnosticism in the sects that adhere to it, like Manichaeism and Mandaism, put in the crossroads of other Christians in the Roman state. The Gnostics borrowed heavily from the teachings of Plato, as did all the others, and viewed the material world as flawed or evil. This is where you get the distinction between flesh and spirit in modern day Christian dogma and teachings. The Gnostics believe that there is a supreme power who is hidden from us until we're saved through esoteric enlightenment. And some scholars believe that the Gnostics were influenced by the Buddhists in this regard, but there's not a whole lot to prove that. Uh, The origins of Gnosticism are pretty unclear since most of what was written about Gnostics was written by their enemies and most of what was written by Gnostics was destroyed by the church fathers in the first and second centuries. And in the third and fourth centuries, there was a concerted effort made to remove Gnostics completely. Some Gnostic sects did survive outside of the empire, like the Mandeans of Iraq and Iran. They still exist to this day, and their religion is centered around the Mandean Gospel of John, one of the four acts of the apostles, and the gospel that contains the seven signs of Jesus' divinity, crucifixion and resurrection, as well as seven I am statements made by Jesus that point to his being the son of God, modeling these statements after the Old Testament God, I am that I am. For all that it's worth, while Gnosticism was condemned as heresy, both in the proto-Orthodox church and in the canonical church, elements of Gnosticism have remained in the Christian faith to this day, such as The idea of personal relationships and understanding with God that need no intermediary, which was one of the larger causes of the Protestant Reformation. All of the doctrines surrounding Jesus and his nature were rooted in Hellenistic Neoplatonism. Neoplatonism is a branch of Platonic thought that describes a series of Platonic thinkers with the most famous being Plotinus, who spent 11 years studying studying and teaching in Alexandria, Egypt in the first century A.D., The main concepts of Neoplatonism are the one and its emanations, the demiurge or new, the world soul and the phenomenal world. All things come from the one and to the one all things return according to Neoplatonic thought. The new is the mirror of the one and the demiurge is the engine that does the work needed to make the new perceivable. The world soul is the barrier existence between the new and the one. 
A person's soul can either be informed by the world soul, which can hold innumerable souls, or a soul can turn from the world soul to the phenomenal world, which is material and finite. I'm sorry that these explanations are so vague. I'm a historian, not a philosopher. So you could say that my soul has turned away from the world soul, is not seeking the new, and is primarily concerned with the material and finite phenomena of the world that I live in. But the overall point that I'm attempting to make here is that Christianity was largely informed by the pagan Hellenistic world that it was birthed in. And these pagan Hellenistic beliefs influenced the thought processes of the men and women who called themselves Christians. With that understanding, these Christians should have been pointing way fewer fingers about what was and wasn't heresy, since a lot of these doctrinal debates weren't rooted in scripture anyway. What these debates did do, however, was cause several theological schisms within the Christian faith that persist to this day. Chapter 4, The Big Four, The Ecumenical Councils of Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, and Chalcedon. So I've already discussed the first ecumenical council of Nicaea and its condemnation of Arius and Arianism. The first council of Nicaea also established the date of Easter, which until that time had been celebrated during the Jewish Passover. Since most Christians believe that Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection occurred during these observances. The Christians believed that they needed to stop relying on the Jewish lunisolar, lunisolar calendar, which celebrated Passover during the month of Nisan. Instead, they chose a month whose 14th day fell before the spring equinox, coming up with their own computations to create a different month of Nisan, separate from the Jewish calendar's version. The council didn't settle the matter of Easter altogether, but after the Council of Nicaea, it was established that Easter would always fall on a Sunday after the northward equinox, which is around the 20th of March on the Gregorian calendar, and that it would uh, occur after the nominal Pascha full moon. Today, in the Eastern churches, the date of Easter is calculated using the Julian calendar, whereas in the West, the Gregorian calendar is used. But at the time of the Council of Nicaea, neither of these calendars existed. The first council of Nicaea is the only one of the seven ecumenical councils that is accepted by all the Christian churches. But like I said earlier, Arianism did not die out because Constantine arbitrarily ruled in the Trinitarians' favor. And it actually grew in popularity after uh, the Arian bishop Eusebius of Nicomedia had Athanasius exiled. This Eusebius was also the bishop that baptized Constantine. And Constantine's son and heir, Constantius II, had Arian leanings. There was also an effort by the remaining pagans to take back control of the state, and Constantius's successor, Julian the Apostate, denounced Christianity. He was born and raised a Christian, but at the age of 20, he denounced it, and he tried to ban Christians from holding political office or teaching classical texts. All of this led to the eventual emperor, Theodosius I, whose predecessor Valens was a semi-Arian, to issue the Edict of Thessalonica in 380 AD, declaring Nicene Christianity to be the official religion of the Roman Empire and sanctioned the persecution of the Arians. He also called the First Ecumenical Council of Constantinople to resolve some longstanding disputes in the church. Theodosius was taking a gamble by having the council in Constantinople because the city was solidly in the Arian camp. 
Theodosius required everyone who wished to enter the council to accept the Nicene Creed, and those who would not were not permitted to enter and immediately had to give up any and all church positions that they held. This led to a power vacuum that bishops from other sees tried to fill with their favorites and a power struggle over who would be the Bishop of Constantinople after the Arian Bishop Demophilus was deposed and condemned. So they tried to establish a patsy uh, who died before being confirmed. And then this guy Maximus and his supporters tried to install Maximus, but the people of Constantinople weren't having it. And Maximus fled to Thessalonica to plead his case before Theodosius. Theodosius decided to consult with the Bishop of Rome, Pope Damasus I, who decided to repudiate Maximus and his followers and make all the appointments that Maximus had made, most of these were in Egypt, make all of their appointments null and void. void. Um, So Theodosius chose Gregory, whose name is actually Nazenius, to be the Bishop of Constantinople. So seven canons came out of the Council of Constantinople, but the Roman Catholic Church only recognizes four of these because they're the only four to appear in the earliest editions of the transcript. And there's evidence that the last three were added later. These are First, a dogmatic condemnation of all shades of Arianism and also of Macedonianism and Apollinarianism. Second is a renewed the Lycine, Nicene legislation imposing upon the bishops the observance of diocesan and patriarchal limits. The third canon reads, the Bishop of Constantinople, however, shall have the prerogative of honor after the Bishop of Rome because Constantinople is the new Rome. The fourth decreed the consecration of Maximus as Bishop of Constantinople to be invalid, declaring Maximus was neither nor is a bishop, nor are they who have been ordained by him in any rank of the clergy. The fifth canon might have actually been passed in 382 a year later and mentions a tome of the Western bishops, most likely of Pope Damasus I. The sixth canon is also rumored to have been passed in 382 and limits the ability to accuse bishops of wrongdoing. The seventh canon prescribes the procedures or rather describes the procedures for receiving certain heretics back into the church and also notes which heretics can never be received, such as Arians. The third canon upset the bishops of Antioch and Alexandria because they were far older than the see in Constantinople. The supremacy of the Bishop of Rome over all others would be the topic du jour of the next two councils. The Council of Constantinople also amended the Nicene Creed. So now it reads, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and indivisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before our world, all worlds, Light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, by whom all things were made, for who us men, and for our salvation, came down from heaven, and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost, and of the Virgin Mary, and was made man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, 
and suffered and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again, according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the father. From thence, he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life who proceedeth from the father who with the father and the son together is worshiped and glorified who spake by the prophets and one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So the most notable additions are the four marks of the church, which are one holy Catholic and apostolic. These are part of the Latin and Eastern rites and are recognized by all the Christian churches, including the Protestants who are just off-brand Catholics anyway. The Niceno Const oh, hold on. Niceno Constantinopolitan Creed also includes the mention of the Holy Spirit, which was incorporated into the Trinitarian belief of Jesus as co-eternal equal of God the Father, who is in hypostatic union with his divine and once human self. The Holy Spirit is the third aspect of God, where God communicates and bestows spiritual gifts on Christians. In Judaism and Islam, the Holy Spirit is a divine aspect of wisdom and prophecy. However, neither of these religions believe in a dual or triune nature of God. The next great ecumenical council was held in Ephesus with Emperor Theodosius II, grandson of Theodosius I, presiding. The chief topic of this council was the condemnation of Nestorianism and consensus on Mary as Theotokos or God-bearer. Nestorius could agree to Mary being Christokos, which means Christ-bearer, but the Orthodox Christians insisted on Mary as Theotokos. Nestorius had asked Theodosius to convene the council so that he could state his case, but out of the 250 bishops that attended, none were willing to risk their bishopric or being excommunicated to support Nestorius's side. Out of the Council of Ephesus, eight councils were passed. Canons 1 through 5 condemned Nestorius and Celestius and their followers as heretics. Canon 6 threatened deposition or excommunication for those who did not accept the council's decrees. Canon 7 condemned any departure from the creed established by the first council of Nicaea. Canon 8 condemned interference by the Bishop of Antioch in the affairs of the church in Cyprus and decreed generally that no bishop was to assume control of any province which was not heretofore from the very beginning been under his own hand or that of his predecessors, lest the canon of the fathers be transgressed. After the Council of Ephesus, Nestorius retired and most of his followers went to churches outside of the Roman Empire in Sassanid Persia. Christians were a minority there and were at times persecuted by the Zoroastrians and polytheists in Persia, who thought that they were pro-Roman. After, Nestor after the Nestorians arrived, the Zoroastrian ruling class encouraged the Nestorian Christians to merge with the Persian Christians since the Nestorians now had a grudge against Rome. Over time, the Persian churches became increasingly influenced by Nestorian beliefs. But in 1994, one of these churches, the Assyrian Church of the East, reconciled with the Roman Catholic Church over the issue of Mary. They had their common understanding 
this is in quotes, of doctrine concerning the divinity and humanity of Christ and recognize the legitimacy and rightness of their respective descriptions of Mary as on the Assyrian side, the mother of Christ, our God and savior, and on the Catholic side as mother of God and also as the mother of Christ. The fourth great ecumenical council of Chalcedon is only considered to be the fourth by Catholics and Eastern Orthodox Christians. It was called by Emperor Marcion in 451 to repudiate the second council of Ephesus, which is where the monophysite Oriental Orthodox churches split from the others over the issue of Jesus's nature. The second council of Ephesus followed the formula of Cyril of Alexandria, which stated Christ is one incarnate nature, fully human and fully God, united without separation, without confusion, without mixture and without alteration. The Council of Chalcedon states that in Christ, two natures exist, a divine nature and a human nature united in one person with neither division nor confusion, which to me sounds like the same damn thing. The non-Chalcedonian churches are the Coptic Orthodox Church of Alexandria, the Ethiopian Orthodox Tewahedo Church, or sorry, Tewahedo Church, the Malankara Orthodox Syrian Church, the Syriac Orthodox Church, and the Armenian Apostolic Church. The Oriental Orthodox churches contend that their definition is not monophytism. However, they still don't accept the Council of Chalcedon. The major outcome of the Council of Chalcedon, other than a schism between the Oriental Orthodox churches and the others, was the Chalcedonian definition, which was a declaration of Jesus Christ's nature that is still accepted as canon by pretty much everyone, including Protestants, to this day. The Chalcedonian definition reaffirms the Nicene Creed and the canons of the pre- previous three ecumenical councils and then adds this word salad. Following then the Holy Fathers, we all unanimously teach that our Lord Jesus Christ is to us one in the same son, the self-same perfect in Godhood, the self-same perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, the self-same of a rational soul and body. Coessential with the Father, according to the Godhood, the self-same, coessential with us, according to the manhood, like us in all things, sin apart, before the ages begotten of the Father, as to the Godhead, but in the last days, the self-same for us and for our salvation, born of the Mary the Virgin, Theotokos, as to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the difference of the nature is being in no way removed because of the union, but rather the properties of each nature being preserved and both occurring, concurring into one person and one hypostasis. Not as though he was parted or divided into two persons, but one and the self-same son and the only begotten son, word, Lord, Jesus Christ, even from the beginning, the prophets have taught concerning him, and as the Lord Jesus Christ himself have taught us, and as a symbol of the fathers have handed down to us. Now, my question to y'all is, how does this sound different from the non-Chalcedonians who say, the Lord Jesus Christ is the God incarnate word. He possesses the perfect Godhood and the perfect manhood. His fully divine nature is united with his fully human nature, yet without mixing, blending, or alteration. So first, all these churches disavow Arianism together. Got it. Then they disavowed Nestorianism together. Got it. And then they split up over what? Especially since 
the non-Chalcedonians don't consider themselves to be monophysites. All in all, the Council of Chalcedon produced 30 canons, none of which I will mention on this podcast because they're all boring and trivial. Chapter five, and now we schism. The Great Schism of 1054 was the culmination of over a century's worth, centuries worth of debates, disputes, power struggles, and ecclesiastical differences between the churches in the West and the churches in the East. From here on out, the churches in the West will be referred to as the Roman Catholic Church and all those churches that are in full communion with it. And the church in the East will be referred to as the Eastern Orthodox Church and all the churches that are in full communion with them. The Eastern Orthodox Church should not be conflated with the Church of the East, which was historically Nestorian, or the Oriental Orthodox Churches who split with the Eastern Orthodox at Chalcedon. Some of the main sources of the Great Schism were, for example, the argument over the Bishop of Rome's universal jurisdiction, the procession of the Holy Spirit, known as Filioque, celibacy of priests and other clergy, whether leavened or unleavened bread should be used in observance of the Eucharist, and the inclusion of the See of Constantinople in the Pentarchy established by Emperor Justinian I. The Eastern Orthodox Church maintains a view called Eucharistic Ecclesiology, whereby all bishops are equals, with exceptions made for patriarchs, archbishops, and metropolitans who are voted into their special seats by their fellow bishops. The Roman Catholic Church maintains that from the time of Constantine, the bishop in Rome, the Pope, has been the only successor to St. Peter, and the Pope has universal jurisdiction over all other bishops in Christendom. The Eastern Orthodox Church also disagrees over the matter of the Pope's infallibility when speaking from the throne of St. Peter. Next up on the docket was the veneration and worship of images, which was debated at the Second Council of Nicaea in 787. This issue is called iconoclasm, which is the belief in the importance of destruction of icons and other statues for religious or political reasons. Kind of like, you know, how it was supposedly important to like knock down Saddam Hussein's statue when the U.S. went into an illegal war in Iraq. The East thought praying to statues of Jesus and Mary was heretical and the West loves it. Personally, as a Roman Catholic, I think that the Eastern veneration of the bones of the patriarchs and their martyrs is just as creepy and mildly heretical as our weird devotion to statuary. But since I am a severely lapsed Catholic, I don't really care either way. I think that we should both just abandon the Pope as like a useless relic of the past and take on the real enemy together, which is the Protestants. Now, as for the Pentarchy in the Sea of Constantinople... That had also been brewing for a while before the final break. The Pentarchy was a model of church organization into five divisions, the seas of Rome, Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem. It was generally accepted by the East, but not by the West because these five seas kind of had dominion over each part of Christendom and the Sea of Rome thought that they should have, of course, universal jurisdiction. Uh, Constantinople was the preeminent jurisdiction in the eastern half of the empire and considered itself equivalent to Rome in the west, especially after the fall of Rome in 476. But perhaps the biggest strain on relations between the eastern and western church was the Fili Filioque. And it means 
from the sun. And it was added to the Niceno Constantinopolitan II Nicene Creed. The original Nicene Creed said that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, and the Filioque adds that, oh, sorry, it's Filioque, or may, whatever, adds that the Holy Spirit also proceeds from the Son. In the 6th century, some Latin churches began adding this Filioque into their procession of the Holy Spirit, and the Eastern Orthodox Church argues that this is a violation of Canon 7 of the First Council of, of Ephesians, which condemns and does not recognize any deviations from either version of the Nicene Creed. Point to the Eastern Orthodox Church on that. I looked it up. They're fucking right. The Filioque was incorporated into the Latin Rite in 1014, but it was rejected by the Eastern churches. The Great Schism reached its zenith when a papal legate sent by Pope Leo IX traveled to Constantinople so that they could refuse to ordain Michael I Cerularius as patriarch, uh, or sorry, ecumenical patriarch, and to force him to submit to the authority of the Pope in Rome. This was after Greek churches in Italy had been forced to either conform to the Latin rite or close. And then Michael Cerularius, or yeah, Cerularius, there we go, ordered all Latin churches in Constantinople to close in retaliation. The Latin delegation also meant to seek assistance from the Byzantine emperor for military campaigns in Italy against the Normans and to gain the emperor's backing for the use of unleavened bread in the Eucharist. So just in case we're keeping track, uh, just so we're keeping track of all the reasons for the Great Schism. The West used unleavened bread for the Eucharist and the East did not. I did not know that that was that serious. Okay. Uh, when Cerularius refused to accept the legate's demands, the Catholic Cardinal Humbert of Silva Candida excommunicated him and Cerularius excommunicated the, the legate right back. And from there, it was just a steady devolution with Latin churches being burned in the East and Orthodox churches being burned in the West. But since 1965, when Pope Paul VI and the ecumenical patriarch Athenagoras I nullified the anathemas that their predecessors had proclaimed against one another, there have been small gestures of reproachment between the two churches and with the Oriental Orthodox churches. However, as it currently stands, the three branches of the original church, uh, Roman church are not in full communion with one another, although the Second Vatican Ecumenical Council, commonly known as Vatican II, allows for Catholic priests to administer the Eucharist, that's, you know, the bread and the unleavened or leavened wine, I mean, unleavened or leavened bread and wine to the Eastern Orthodox churches and the Oriental Orthodox churches. A good rule of thumb as to what churches are in full communion with the Roman Catholic Church is to see Catholic in the name, such as the Melkite Greek Catholic Church, which is headquartered today in Damascus, Syria. Next episode, I'll go into more detail on the Eastern Orthodox, Oriental Orthodox, and Roman Catholic Churches and how they're organized, what they believe, and where their believers can be found today. I will unfortunately also have to talk about Charlemagne, the Merovingians, and the Carolingians. So join me next time for more Musings on History. <laughs>